You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Headlines are moving today on the debt ceiling proposal unveiled around this time yesterday, as you may remember, by Speaker McCarthy. When President Biden and Senate Democrats waste time, House Republicans are taking action. Today, I'm proud to announce that we are introducing the Limit, Save, Grow Act of 2023. Enter Senator Joe Manchin today, the Democrat from West Virginia, thorn in the side of the Biden administration, issues a statement applauding Kevin McCarthy for offering his plan and urging President Biden to the negotiating table. But the version just outlined may still, in fact, be in flux. Bloomberg's Eric Wasson reporting members of the Freedom Caucus are calling for additional work requirements for Medicaid and food stamps. They want 30 hours instead of 20 hours. Some moderates balking at that, so it's unclear exactly what will happen when this goes to a vote, which is expected next week. Of course, it's unclear what happens with this whole story, period. Bloomberg Intelligence reporting now. Debt ceiling breach likely avoided, but angst is coming. Nathan Dean, the BI senior government analyst, writing in a survey of buy-side, sell-side economists and corporate clients, conducted the last week of March. A majority of respondents believe the U.S. will avoid breaching the debt ceiling, yet political brinksmanship leading up to an agreement may cause some market angst. Only 8% of respondents believe political wrangling over the issue would not have an impact on the S&P 500. How about that? 37% thinking it would be worse than 2011 when the S&P 500 fell at 1.17%. President Biden yesterday saying, hey, in the Trump administration, we just passed a clean bill. Donald Trump seeking to increase the debt limit while he was doing what he was doing. He said, quote, I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking about using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. I guess he didn't know the new MAGA Republicans he bred. You know, we're interested. You're living in an interesting world when Joe Biden is quoting Donald Trump when it comes to the debt ceiling. And this is where we begin, as I mentioned, with a central player in these talks, in crafting this legislation, Congressman Byron Donalds, the Republican from Florida, is with us. And, Congressman, you're making your first appearance here on Bloomberg, so I want to welcome you. Uh, it's great to have you, and I appreciate your time with us today on the radio. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Were you in the room for this? Reportedly, you were there when the Freedom Caucus asked for additional work requirement hours for Medicaid and food stamps. Is this still a plan that's in flux? Um, look, so I, I've been in a lot of rooms uh, surrounding the, the debt ceiling package. Um, you know, there, there are members who want to see, um, you know, whether it's 24 hours or 28 hours um, in in the work requirement, <laughs> the work requirements formula. But by and large, I think we're gonna we're gonna get that that worked out, and uh, we're gonna move forward with our package. Does that uh, give you any sense of where the votes are at this point? Does Speaker McCarthy have 218 for this proposal? I believe so. I think we're going to get there. Um, But you know what? It's actually interesting for your listeners, for everybody in the country. This is actually what democracy looks like. 
Um, you know, under the last Congress, Nancy Pelosi just brought bills to the floor directly out of her office. Members had no ability or time to really read them and understand what was in them. You know, we put this package out yesterday. Uh, we anticipate trying to go to the floor for a vote on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And so that gives all the members and the American people, frankly, an ability to read this proposal, digest it, um, you know, have some discussion on some, some of the finer pieces of it. And I think that's a good thing overall. That was one of the commitments that we had to the American people was a transparent House of Representatives. I'll also add this entire situation is all created by the Democrats and Joe Biden. When they passed the omnibus spending bill right before Christmas, they could have increased the debt ceiling at that time. They chose not to. They did not want to do it. Um, so they could have done it then. They didn't want to do it. They wanted to set up this, this brinksmanship, this fight, if you will, around the debt ceiling. But Republicans are committed to, want A, having a common sense, reasonable way to raise the debt ceiling, and B, getting the country on a glide path financially that we can actually maintain so we can be serious about our financial outlook going forward. Well, I want to wonk out with you for a second here, because this is Bloomberg and we're allowed to do that, Congressman. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. They, well, you know, it's it's interesting when we go back to the beginning of this Congress, to your point, the promise was transparency that we were going to be done with backroom deals. I remember the, the, the huge level of criticism that omnibus you mentioned received here. And the idea was to go back to regular order, that this would actually go through committee, that there would be a real debate here. And it seems like everyone is asking Speaker McCarthy and Joe Biden to cut a deal. We spoke earlier with Brendan Boyle, who says this never came through the budget committee. So how is this different? Well, it is slightly different because that ceiling is, you know, it's a different kind of artifice. It touches so many aspects of spending overall. But mm-hmm. all of the key members, whether it's Jody Arrington, who chairs budget, they've all been a part of that process. And like I said, you members are going to have five days to review this. Five days. Nancy Pelosi would drop stuff on the floor in like a day. And the day would mean she dropped it at, at uh, 11.59 mm-hmm. and we're voting at 10 a.m. And for Nancy Pelosi, that was a day. So this is a very open process. Again, members are going to have an opportunity to read it. Adjustments can be made. Members can comment on it. We've already, I've already had many discussions with members on the floor about this. Mm-hmm. It's really been a deliberative process. And even though it wasn't in the actual budget committee per se, under Kevin McCarthy's leadership, Members of every portion of our conference have been, have been in the room discussing the finer points, what they would like to see, what they would not like to see. It's actually been a very uh, collaborative process. Has it been collaborative with Democrats as well? Because they, they tell us that they're not part of that conversation. Well, I think the first thing is we wanted to you know, get to a position as Republicans who are, have the majority in charge. But now the Democrats have an opportunity to comment as well. If they have great ideas and sure. ways that we can actually get our spending down, of course we want to see those. And if there's agreement on those, that could become a part of what the House package is. Uh, but now that's on them to read it. I would tell my Democrat colleagues, at least they get a chance to read it and digest <laughs> it. When we sure. were in the minority, we had no ability to do that. Understood. Uh, does that mean if there are five days to review that you expect to vote on Monday, Congressman? Um, I would anticipate Monday. I think I think more likely was is looking like Wednesday. Okay, uh, we're at actually we're not back till Tuesday. I would anticipate Wednesday is a is a is the day to vote. But again, look, we are doing something that is really important in this package so far as it exists. We're talking about capping discretionary spending at 2022 levels. Mm-hmm. Um, to put this in context for people who want to caps, when Barack Obama Pat put out his last budget, his spending projection in discretionary spending, his last year, 24, actually puts us in line with that budget. So my question for Democrats is, you disagreed with, with uh, President Obama's budget lines, from, from 2015, 2016, because that's where it puts discretionary spending. It puts us in line with that. Well, some Number have suggested, two, though, the Congressman, before you go to item two, and we can pick through these, we've got time, sure, that the, sure, the sure. difference here is that so much has been taken off the table, beginning with entitlements and, and any number of, of other levels of spending, that we're dealing with such a small piece of the pie that going back to 22 levels would require draconian cuts to actually eliminate full programs. Is that not true? No, I disagree with Draconian. What we're doing, if you go back to 22 levels, we're really just getting back to pre-COVID-19 pandemic spending levels and non-defense discretion. But only for a portion but of the we, budget, though, right? But that's, that's a portion of the budget. That is correct. But you got to understand, 
we we juiced spending on Capitol Hill because of COVID-19. Everybody knows this. Now that the pandemic is over, Joe Biden acknowledges the pandemic is over. It doesn't it make sense to actually get back to pre-pandemic spending levels? The spending, we borrowed a bunch of money to address the concerns of the American people. Now that the crisis has passed, we have to actually get back to fiscal order and the 2022 levels, which push non-defense discretionary down and actually lower our spending baseline, is the appropriate and, and sensible remedy mm-hmm. for the nation's spending uh, uh, soundness uh, going forward. Uh, one other thing I want to point on this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been widely reported about what happens about debt ceiling overall and will, will we default on our debt. And I believe the credit, aid, the, the, the credit agencies, the rating agencies have always said, listen, the, the political uh, side of Washington, the legislative branch, the, the executive, they have to have a pathway to actually raise our debt ceiling and be, <clears throat> be responsible with it. But they also say that Congress and the White House have to actually be serious about the trajectory of spending like the trajectory of spending that we're on. Mm-hmm. This plan gets us serious. I think this is something that the rating agencies would like to see. Chuck Schumer says it can't pass the Senate. What happens at that point? Say the bill does pass the House with 218. It can't get through the Senate. Does that put Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden at the table? Well, that sounds very lazy from uh, Chuck Schumer. I don't even think he and his members have even had a discussion on any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just look at the House. You know, you have 100 United States senators. Mm -hmm. They get elected statewide. Chuck Schumer knew this was coming, too. Where's his work product? Where's his plan? Well, I thought the House was taking the lead on this, though, right? That was the idea for the Republican majority to lead this. If you... if you talk to senators, senators always believe they're always in the lead. You know, so let's just (laughs) let's put that to the side for a moment. But again, the House is now coming forward with a proposal. We think we're going to go ahead and vote that out on Wednesday. That's a good thing to do. Well, now, Mm -hmm. Chuck Schumer, what are you going to do? Where where are Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans? What's their strategy? What's their plan? Don't just sit there and be innocent bystanders, because, frankly, that's being derelict in your duty. That's what I would say to Chuck Schumer. Second thing I'll say to Chuck Schumer is, if you have a plan, or if Chuck Schumer has the position of the White House and Joe Biden of saying, we're just going to do a clean debt ceiling, no negotiations, then pass it. I don't think Chuck Schumer has the votes. For those who are questioning the promise of regular order, Congressman, is this the new version, you know, five days but bypass the committees? No, I, I don't think so. I think the debt ceiling, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, this is not just a regular policy bill. This is not the regular appropriations process. We're talking about, the, you know, essentially the nation's credit card. So yeah. It's a little different dynamic. What we have always committed to and what you're going to see is that when it comes to a budget resolution from uh, Chairman Arrington's committee and the, and the actual total appropriation bills, House Republicans are committed to that. The American people are going to see that. We're going to have a deliberative process there. The Judiciary Committee, they met yesterday. They had a markup that went to 1.30 in the morning mm-hmm. on our border security package. Mm-hmm. That's moving. So regular order is alive and well. Our view on the debt ceiling package is that is a little different than the, the common spending bills, the National Defense Authorization Act, the Farm Bill, et cetera. All those things are going to be moving through the committee process like they should. Can you tell our listeners and viewers, Congressman, that not only will we not default on our debt, but this will be wrapped up before those credit agencies you mentioned downgrade U.S. debt? Well, look, my commitment and the commitment of House Republicans is to not default. We are going to increase the debt limit. But we're going to do it responsibly. That's what I'm going to commit to. We're going to be responsible about, responsible about this. Um, but I would, my question is for the White House. Are they going to be derelict and basically stomp their feet and not negotiate? Because if they choose not to negotiate, it will be the White House. It will be Joe Biden that will lead our nation into default. House Republicans have been working on this for almost three months now. And if we remember, it's Speaker McCarthy that's been reaching out to the White House, not the other way around, trying to meet, trying to find a way, a path forward. Joe Biden has been reluctant. He's been refusing. So, you know, when I tell people that this is all by design, that Joe Biden wants brinksmanship, the the facts are there. Like I said at the top, he could have increased the debt ceiling when they did the omnibus uh, spending bill last Christmas. They could have done it. He Mm -hmm. chose not to. That was on purpose. I only have a minute left. 
You made sure. some news recently by endorsing Donald Trump for president instead of your own governor in the state of Florida. Why not Ron DeSantis? Well, look, I think when you make decisions like this, it's really not about Governor DeSantis. It's, it's my viewpoint that considering with where we are on the on the world stage, China is more aggressive. Russia is more aggressive. You have China trying to negotiate around the U.S. dollar with Brazil about oil. Yeah. So it's a foreign policy purposes. decision on your that's part. That's a dangerous. That's a dangerous situation there. Secondarily, we have a lot of cleaning up in the federal agencies that must occur. We already know that elements in the FBI, in the Department of Justice, in yeah. CDC have have actually suppressed information from the American people and have forced social media companies to suppress information. We need somebody who hit the ground running on day one, and that's Donald Trump. Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican from Florida, thanks for your time and insights today on Bloomberg. And don't be a stranger. Come back and see us as we figure this out. We've got a lot to learn still on the debt ceiling. We'll assemble the panel for their view next. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The headline on the terminal, Mansion praises GOP's McCarthy. Just what Joe Biden wanted to read when he logged on this morning. Slams Biden on debt ceiling bill. And that's pretty true. The Statement doesn't leave much to the imagination. Quote, this is Joe Manchin, the Democrat. I applaud Speaker McCarthy for putting forward a proposal that would prevent default and rein in federal spending. While I do not agree with everything proposed, the fact of the matter is it is the only bill actually moving through Congress that would prevent default. He goes on to urge President Biden to sit down and negotiate. Sounds a lot like Mitt Romney when Bloomberg talked to him today on Capitol Hill. There's no question but that that, that uh, what Kevin McCarthy has announced uh, is, uh, if it's able to be passed, will put the uh, ball back in the administration's court, which is, look, you have... Uh, you have branches that became Republican, all right, that the House became Republican. The White House has to recognize that in order to get something done, both parties have to come to the table. And for the White House to say, no, we're not going to negotiate is simply irresponsible. Mitt Romney talking with Bloomberg just about an hour ago on Capitol Hill. We'll be bringing you fresh sound uh, as it emerges here again with some wrinkles still in the plan that is has already been presented. The ink is barely dry and the Freedom Caucus is asking for some changes here later in the game. They had already demanded a revocation of the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, now asking for more hours in work requirements for Medicaid and food stamps. Let's assemble the panel and get into this. Rick Davis is here, of course, Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican analyst, joined today by Drew Littman, policy director at Brownstein Hyatt, former chief of staff, Senator Al Franken. It's great to have both of you here. Uh, Rick, you just heard uh, our deep dive with Byron Donalds and changes still in the works here. Do, you, do we feel like Kevin McCarthy has the votes to make this get through the House? Well, it certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, certainly seems like he's lining them up. I mean, our early indications, you know, the Dusty Johnson, uh, the congressman who heads the uh, Main Street uh, caucus, uh, which is a pretty substantial caucus, you know, almost 70 members came out for it. Um, uh, but uh, but he's still got issues. Problem Solvers Caucus, one of the other five families that make up the Republican caucus, um, <laughs> they presented their own plan. Uh, so it's not clear whether their members will uh, uh, step in lockstep, you know, behind this proposal. Mm-hmm. So he's still got some wood to chop. And I think that's what we're hearing from Republicans all over, which is we wish him luck. We want him to succeed. Good luck. Um, but you got to come back to us with 218 votes. And and there's no sweat off our back in the Senate if you uh, spend a lot of time trying it because, you know, we're we're ultimately going to get a cut on it, whatever passes the House. So uh, there's a lot of easy responses to this and, and hopes for, you know, the best for Speaker McCarthy. But at the end of the day, the onus is still on him. Drew Lippman, welcome back to Bloomberg. It's great to have you. Uh, I'm I'm curious you. your thoughts today. Now that we've heard from Joe Manchin, now that we just spoke with Byron Donalds to get his take on things, 
Do you get a sense that the votes are here, that Republicans in the House can actually get this done? And I'll, I'll ask you, if not, if there if we don't see 218 next week, does Joe Biden still stay on his end of Pennsylvania Avenue and talks do not begin? I think that McCarthy probably can get 218 votes. It's always easier when you're voting for something that is still essentially a messaging bill. It's not going to be enacted into law. And it doesn't really make or call for very specific spending cuts, certainly not in domestic discretionary programs. It calls for gigantic aggregate cuts, but it doesn't specify how those cuts are to be made. So it's like voting for it's almost like a sense of the House resolution. Hmm. It's not binding. It's not going to make any changes. So I think, yeah, Speaker probably can get 218 votes for that. I think Biden has very little reason uh, to negotiate with McCarthy. We've always been able to raise the debt limit. Republicans want to block a debt limit, want to block government from raising the debt limit. They're the ones on the hook for this. Republicans have suffered every time they initiated a government shutdown, which they always thought they were in the right. They always wound up losing. They'll lose this time, too. Well, Chris, a default is a, is a, a, a heck of a lot worse than a shutdown. Rick, what do you think of this regular order going out the window so quick in this Republican majority? Was it fair of me to ask uh, Byron Donalds about this? He says, well, we gave people five days to read it. That's five more days than Nancy Pelosi gave us. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting argument he's making about uh, transparency, right? It's not regular order. Sure. Um, and and he did sort of take a pass at regular order where he said, you know, <laughs> Congressman Arrington's committee will report out a budget. Now, I'm not sure Congressman Arrington <laughs> has got that memo yet because there's been no work done uh, from what anybody can tell right now on producing a budget, which would have actually given you the kind of cuts, the kind of policies that you want to enact that would go into this kind of a proposal because it's not just a debt limit he's right uh congressman donald's right saying hey a debt limit on its own is different right and it doesn't really have to go through regular order yeah. he's right but then he included like you they're know, cutting the deal the on the budget. discretionary budget of the federal government and that <laughs> does go through regular order so he's kind of having it both ways on that one you know he at one point was uh, in in the race for speaker uh, albeit reluctantly uh, Drew Lippman, have we mm-hmm. given up on transparency on Capitol Hill? You know, I started off working on Capitol Hill in 1989 in a House Budget Committee slot. Leon Panetta was the chairman. Of course, he went on to be White House Chief of Staff and Defense yeah. Secretary. The committee was run very rigorously, and Panetta expected people to come to him with specific cuts. There was always a proposal like the Republicans have now to simply limit this domestic discretionary spending to the previous year's level and not allow for inflation increases. It sounds like a way to make painless way to make cuts, but those ideas always got rejected because they're not serious. You have to specify what you're going to cut and the budget resolution would be the vehicle for that. I don't think we're going to see one. Rick, I asked Byron Donalds about his endorsement of Donald Trump. This has become a big story here as Ron DeSantis came to Washington, D.C. to raise money and get endorsements. And it turns out that, you know, a good chunk of the Florida delegation at that very moment decided to go with Donald Trump. Chip Roy did as well from uh, Texas earlier endorsing Ron DeSantis, uh, even though uh, the, the current seems to be moving in a different direction here. What does this tell you about the potential candidacy of the Florida governor when members of his own congressional delegation are looking to Mar-a-Lago uh, instead of the state house? Yeah, I, I, you know, they're going to break up uh, in the Republican caucus along different lines of endorsements. And, and, and really, my experience in presidential politics is uh, congressional endorsements are, are not even worth the paper that they're written on. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, they really don't move votes in a primary. And so I really wonder why uh, Ron DeSantis would put himself at risk of, of looking weak by going up to Capitol Hill, filling a room full of members half of which aren't going to endorse him. Right. And so it creates this narrative that maybe he's not really on top of uh, running for president. And, and and that's much more disturbing to a campaign than like whether or not you get a certain member from your old 
district. I mean, John McCain had such a horrible relationship with his own caucus in <laughs> in Arizona that, you know, he, he would publicly reject their endorsement <laughs> if they wanted to give him one. So sure. I'm, I'm used to a little different take on this stuff. But but yeah. it did appear a little weak that he would he would hold this kind of thing. I mean, why come to Washington when the actions in Iowa, New Hampshire, South sure. Carolina and Florida? I mean, yeah. it really doesn't make any sense. And of course, he has been visiting those places, uh, Drew. But I wonder if this speaks to the trajectory of that potential campaign. To Rick's point, those endorsements may not matter, but does it speak to the wider uh, momentum that Donald Trump is enjoying? I think it does, but I also want to second something Rick said. The first thing I look for, it sounds like the first thing he looks for in a nascent presidential campaign, is a sense that they know how to operate tactically. And DeSantis really is falling down on that. You can't have a meeting one-on-one with a congressman and then have him walk out of the room and say he's endorsing the other candidate. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's an awful setback. That's just not properly advanced. And the thing that DeSantis is getting the most press for now nationally is fighting with Disney. That is a losing battle. He seems like he's not ready for prime time. You still think he's going to run Rick or is that not a sure thing? Well, he's sure raising a lot of money and he's sure running a lot of ads and yeah. he's sure getting around to a lot of states. But uh, yeah, he'll run. Uh, it, there's no indication that he's going to chicken out. Uh, I, I think he's braced for uh, uh, an onslaught like Trump is giving him now. So that's nothing new. Uh, nobody likes it, but they got to go through it if they were going to get the nomination. So um, I, I don't think th- I've seen anything that indicates anything other than what we've been talking about, which is a guy who's never run for president is kind of learning the hard way. His, his team is not really presidential material. They've not gone through many of these things before. And so, you know, it's, it's going to look like uh, a little bit of ugly before it starts getting any traction. (laughs) A little bit of ugly. Uh, according to Rick Davis, Drew Lippman with us as well. Our panel for today on Bloomberg Sound On. We're going to have more with the panel next. And we'll also talk to Bloomberg's Jordan Fabian on this day that Joe Biden's pick to be the next labor secretary runs into heavy duty headwinds on Capitol Hill. The hearing uh, for potential secretary Sue happening this morning. We'll have more on that ahead. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The nominees aren't coming that easily for President Biden. First it was the FCC, then it was the FAA, and now it's labor. Remember the last time we talked to Marty Walsh, it was his exit interview, his last day on the job. He talked about the benefits of having a deputy who could step in and take his job. That would be Julie Sue, the Deputy Secretary of Labor. And today, the big hearing for her nomination on Capitol Hill. This on the Senate side, of course, and chairing the committee, Senator Bernie Sanders. Julie Sue should be confirmed as our Secretary of Labor because she has spent her life fighting for those working families, and they need her now. Okay, you would expect that. Ranking member on the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, Bill Cassidy, does not agree. Setting his politics aside, Marty Walsh had significant experience in negotiations and managing organizations. That experience is important. But now with 150 labor contracts expiring this year, the potential of replacing him with someone who has a history of bias and no direct experience handling labor disputes should be concerning to all. So you're no Marty. Joining us for a little perspective before we get back to our panel is Bloomberg White House reporter Jordan Fabians. Good to see you, Jordan. Good to see you, uh, too, thanks Joe. Thanks for coming back in. This is the third time around here. Is is this going to end the way the other two did? It's not looking good for Julie Sue. Um, she has managed to, uh, you know, not I, I want to say make a lot of enemies, but mm. she's not really convinced uh, a lot of people that. You know, she should be uh, confirmed, especially on the Republican side. And yeah. so then she's going to need to rely on all Democrats. And there is uh, Joe Manchin out there who has reportedly expressed concern mm-hmm. about her nomination to the White House. Yeah. And the other wild card is Kristen Cinema, who's been, you know, pro industry figure in the Senate. And so. But won't show her cards. Won't, won't show her cards and, and doesn't show her cards typically. But yeah. uh, she's really the one to watch. If she joins Joe Manchin, 
this We're nominee done. is is basically done. And exactly. Diane Feinstein's not making things any easier uh, not being here, of course. But there there was a lot of talk today about corruption in California. She this is where she came from, right? As essentially their labor secretary, I think they call it commissioner out there about the use of COVID funding that, that was, you know, badly abused, as we saw in a lot of states. Right. So there's two main things that critics have seized on uh, in Julius Hughes' record. One is what you mentioned, Joe, the uh, m- millions and millions of dollars in, in COVID relief funds were uh, you know, fraudulently went out. Basically, you know, fraudulent claims were, were dispersed. Also, unemployment insurance, the extra unemployment insurance, yeah. uh, which her department oversaw, uh, the, the that went out to a lot of people who apparently shouldn't have gotten it, and so critics have seized on that. The other thing is her views on labor rules surrounding the gig economy. So Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, uh, those app-based services, she was a supporter of a rule that would have made it harder for those companies to keep their workers as independent contractors and easier for them to become employees with full benefits. That's something the industry didn't want. And so their allies have been very vocal in opposing Julie Sue. And it's made traction uh, among Republicans in Congress. That's one of the top things they cite in opposing her nomination. Do we know when we get a vote on this or is that not clear? It's not clear yet. I mean, they're going to need to see first uh, how things go in committee, right? If she can't get out of committee, uh, then the process is essentially over. And so uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, You know, usually it's maybe a week or two Mm -hmm. when they hold a vote. But if they don't have the votes, they won't hold a vote. They'll just pull pull her back or ask her to (laughs) withdraw. She'll do that on her own. Absolutely. Jordan, thank you. It's great to see you helping us set the stage here for our panel. Jordan Fabian, Bloomberg White House reporter. You can always find his work, of course, uh, on the terminal. And Rick Davis is back with us along with Drew Littman now. Our panel with insights here. Uh, Unclear exactly what's going to happen with this one, Rick, uh, but it's not looking great for this White House. What happens if a third nominee goes down? Well, look, I mean, I think this, you know, is going to be a process that the Biden administration is going to have to look and say, we got to build more consensus before we throw people up there. I mean, yeah. look, he's got they've got people like John Tester, who we haven't talked about yet, mm-hmm. who's going to have a really tough reelection and who you know, isn't going to walk the plank here. And part of the problem on this one is it's worth pointing out. Republicans and Democrats both liked Marty Walsh. I mean, he's a hard act to Apparently follow. So, yeah. He had a lot of experience and he did well on Capitol Hill uh, with members. And and so I, I think there's an attitude like, hey, give us somebody like him back. Uh, you know, we don't want to we don't want to have somebody who doesn't have the kind of experience and gravitas that Marty had. So uh, it's part of their success with Marty Walsh is one of the reasons why they're having such a hard time, you know, with the Sue nomination. Drew, one of the, the knocks here that Rick is alluding to is that she has no experience Uh, negotiating major labor deals with 150 apparently contracts up for renewal this year, according to Bill Cassidy. She doesn't have the experience that Marty Walsh had as a labor leader, as the mayor of Boston. Is there some truth to that? Literally, yes, but I think she apprenticed under Walsh and she should be able to do that. She's surrounded by hyper-competent people. I think one problem that she has is that some of the most important issues, like the gig economy issues, they're simply new to senators. I've talked to senators about these issues. Some of them only have the vaguest idea of what they're about, and that makes it hard to suss out people's positions. I don't know how important the gig economy is in West Virginia, but it makes it hard to anticipate. This isn't classic labor versus management stuff. It makes it hard to know where people are going to go. You know, one of the things, as we discussed with uh, Jordan, Rick, that that we're hearing a lot about in in the hearing today is the EDD, the California Employment Development Department, with a lot of folks who who unlawfully exploited pandemic unemployment assistance and got a lot of money that that they were not due. Uh, This is something that happened all over the country, though. Is that a fair attack on this nominee? Yeah, just because it happened everywhere else uh, doesn't mean that uh, uh, she escapes any public uh, scrutiny uh, about the tenure she had. So, yeah, I mean, she's got to ask those answer those questions. She'll do that today in the hearings. Uh, and uh, and I think that there'll be, as I understand it, a number of important follow up questions that members are going to have her come by and, mm-hmm. and visit them one on one, which includes the aforementioned, you know, John Tester, who said he's going to sit yeah. down with her before he makes a final decision. But that usually isn't a good indication of public support uh, when you're going to withhold that until you get to you know have that star chamber moment. So, Drew, does this nominee fail? It's on the razor's edge. I will say that if Tester's vote is decisive, he'll vote to confirm her. Interesting. What do you think, Rick? Is this DOA? 
No, I look. I think they got a shot on goal on this. Uh, if yeah. she overperforms in the hearing, hearings matter. They can be uh, determinative uh, to senators. They listen, uh, and if she impresses um, uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema in the process of seeing her through that hearing, um, you know there there could be some new momentum for her. Uh, but if she doesn't, it's probably doomed. Rick Davis, Drew Lippman, many thanks for a great conversation and a smart panel. Hearings matter. I love Rick Davis. We'll do this again, of course, tomorrow with our panel. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Speaking of the EDD, Bill Cassidy was so impressed by this part of the story that he took to rapping in the hearing room. That's next on Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We talked earlier about President Biden's nominee for Labor Secretary Julie Sue's hearing on Capitol Hill today. It happened before the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in which ranking member Senator Bill Cassidy, the Republican, seized on a case from California. This is, of course, where Julie Sue was at one time labor commissioner. With this whole idea of misuse of COVID funds uh, becoming a major problem out there, and it all came down to a guy by the name of Fontrell Antonio Baines, the case of Nuke Bizzle. He's a rapper, Nuke Bizzle, who unlawfully, according to the Justice Department, exploited the pandemic unemployment assistance provisions of the CARES Act. This all happened in California's Employment Development Department. They call it the EDD. Here's Bill Cassidy. Under Ms. Sue, fraud in California was rampant. Rapper Nuke Bizzle there he is. was arrested, pled guilty, and ordered to pay $705,000 in restitution after posting a music video bragging about how easy it was to defraud the EDD program. This is a real story. He actually wrote a song and made a video about his thievery from the California Employment Development Department, the EDD. And Bill Cassidy, well, he knows the lyrics to that rap. The lyrics include, quote, I done got rich off of EDD. Ain't hit no more licks because of EDD. Yeah. Just last night, I was selling peas, yep. and I just woke up to 300 Gs. This is what it really is. I ain't got rich, I'm an EDD. I ain't hit yeah. no more lick of an EDD. And just last night, I was selling peas, and I just woke up to 300 Gs. 300 Gs. For the record, my interpretation is 300 Gs is $300,000. That is correct. But he was ordered to pay over 700 Gs back in restitution. <laughs> the rapper was not held accountable because of Miss Sue's oversight. Mm but because he publicly admitted to his crime on a rap video. It's quite a video, too. You see him out there. He's stealing envelopes from mailboxes, throwing $100 bills around. It's all about the EDD. It is. It was an unbelievable. That's right. Nuke Bizzle and Bill Cassidy. I see a collab on the way. Kaylee Lines is up next. Hour 2 starts right now. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Kaylee, it's good to see you. We're amazingly today talking about the debt ceiling. You don't say. Um, <laughs> even on this day of SpaceX, well, it is 420, so we got to get through this somehow. <laughs> uh, still got your blue check? I haven't looked yet. Oh, I forgot about that. This is the day the blue that. checks are supposed to go away. The rocket was supposed to go up. That didn't happen. Oh, my blue Let's check's see. still there. The blue check was supposed to go For away, now. and that didn't happen either. <laughs> Same here. I'm daring Elon Musk to remove it, though, because... I don't want people to think I'm paying for it. You know what I mean? Mm, this is a good point. You now have to consider. So a couple of wrinkles on the debt ceiling here. Some great reporting today, of course, uh, from Bloomberg, just embedded with the lawmakers on Capitol Hill. One of them, uh, Eric Wasson, of course, 
uh, one of our congressional reporters says the Freedom Caucus is making a move on trying to tweak this package further, even though it was, quote unquote, unveiled yesterday, asking for additional hours of work requirements for Medicaid and food stamps. This after demanding that the IRA be revoked. It is giving us the sense that this is not fully baked. Yeah, that this done deal isn't done yet. And Mm. we have to keep in mind, we have talked at length about how whatever the House passes is going to die in the Senate either way. But there's a question of whether or not it can even die in the House, potentially, if McCarthy can rally the 218 uh, votes he needs Mm -hmm. around this. Definitely still a moving target. And when the Speaker wants a vote next week, there's a question of, can he make that happen? Exactly. And what does the measure they actually vote on ultimately look like? With us last hour, uh, Congressman Byron Donalds, the Republican from Florida, says likely Wednesday, and he believes, while they're not there yet, that McCarthy will have 218 votes. Bloomberg asked Mitt Romney uh, today about the prospect of engaging in negotiations over all of this. And, of course, Joe Biden has yet to sit down again with mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy. Here's what he said. There's no question but that, that, that uh, what Kevin McCarthy has announced uh, is, uh, if it's able to be passed, will put the uh, ball back in the administration's court, which is, look, you have, uh, you have branches that became Republican, all right? The, the House became Republican. Yeah. The White House has to recognize that in order to get something done, both parties have to come to the so table. elections have consequences, says the senator from Utah. We want to talk to the ranking member on the House Budget Committee about all of this. I haven't heard from Brendan Boyle in a bit, Mm. uh, who's, of course, well, supposed to be in the center of this whole thing, but they bypassed the Budget Committee. So he's waiting to find out along with everybody else. Congressman Brendan Boyle, welcome back to Bloomberg. Always a pleasure to be with you. Well, House Republicans are out with their proposal here uh, for the debt limit and the budget. I don't know if you've had a chance to pick through the bill yet, uh, but you were quoted as calling it a legislative Frankenstein. What does that mean? Well, if you take a look at it, it's really, aside from uh, raising the debt ceiling um, by less than a year, it's basically a hodgepodge of all these different, rather unrelated uh, conservative wishes combined all uh, onto the, the same piece of legislation. Keep in mind, by the way, this is the same crowd that held up the election of a speaker by about a week and went 15 rounds because they were supposedly so committed to regular order going through committee, ensuring bills only had one subject. Mm. Well, all of that, of course, is thrown completely out the window because we now have this bill skipping the budget committee, going straight to the floor, really put together by one person, Kevin McCarthy. And again, it's a combination of uh, a dozen or so completely unrelated things. Well, but it doesn't seem, Congressman, that the consensus seems to be that this is really the ultimate package that Republicans expect would uh, even get through. This is just an opening, if you will, something that can then have some give and take that comes along with it. A negotiation, in theory, is what the Speaker would like to see. And we actually have heard from members of your own party in the Senate, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, slamming Biden for not negotiating. He actually said in a statement he applauds Speaker McCarthy for putting forward this proposal, even though he doesn't agree with everything proposed. Congressman, should the White House be engaging in these conversations? Yeah, let's not overstate this. I mean, I I happen to like Joe personally, but I don't think he, frankly, is speaking for many or even any Democrats on this issue, saying that he likes most of Speaker McCarthy's proposal. And just to be clear, because I think that this whole conversation around negotiation has gotten a little obscured. Obviously, Democrats are ready, willing, and able to negotiate with Republicans on future spending. What we are not willing to do is to give up anything uh, in order to get Republicans to do what is their responsibility, and that is put a bill on the floor to raise the debt ceiling clean. Imagine if a few years ago when Donald Trump was president, and we voted three times, by the way, Democrats did to raise the debt ceiling when Donald Trump was president. Imagine if we had held it up and we said, no, um, we're not going to uh, vote for the debt ceiling increase uh, unless you lower the age of Medicare to 55 or unless you add dental to Medicare or unless you put this funding toward the environment. We didn't do that. That would be irresponsible. Uh, raising the debt ceiling is about past spending, mm-hmm. spending, frankly, that both parties uh, appropriated That is something that has to happen, period. We're happy to have a negotiation about future spending. We have to. Government runs out of funding midnight, September 30th, anyway. 
you may not be surprised by Joe Manchin. I'm not sure anyone is in Washington uh, on this one, Congressman. But just today, Bloomberg also spoke with Senators Tina Smith and John Hickenlooper. And they both said starting negotiations was entirely appropriate at this point. So I guess not to get too wonky here, but when should the president start talking with the speaker? Do you need to see or does the administration need to see that he has 218 votes first on this new plan? Well, back a few months ago, it was pretty clear that both sides were going to unveil their budget to the American people. President Biden did that, I believe, on March 9th. He unveiled it uh, in my uh, congressional district in Philadelphia. Republicans said they were going to shortly thereafter have their budget and that they would present it to the budget committee uh, on which I serve as ranking member uh, and that they were going to have a vote. Never happened. Then they said it would be April. Never happened. Then you have this piece of legislation, which actually isn't a budget, by the way. Um, So that has really been the missing piece all along, that Speaker McCarthy hasn't been able to put anything together working with his colleagues that would have um, 218 votes on the other side. If he is able to get 218 votes Mm -hmm. for this bill, while it's not a budget, obviously that would at least lay down a marker on their side and and probably uh, would move, you know, some things forward. But I I, I do want to interject, by the way, um, the most important thing, though, that we could do for the market right now is just to have a clean increase in the debt ceiling. I mean, given the projections that are out there of a slowing economy, the possibility of a recession. We still don't know if we're entirely over um, what was the banking crisis not that long ago. Let's just get this debt ceiling done with, and then we can have real negotiation and compromise over what next year's budget and the years after that looks like. Well, but as you rightly allude to, Congressman, a lot hinges on the full faith and credit of the United States. A potential default or getting close to it could wreak havoc on financial markets, ultimately perhaps the U.S. economy. And the American people are going to want to place blame on someone for that or somebody for that. What gives you the confidence that with this brinkmanship, Democrats won't be found at fault should they not blink? Uh, so first, I mean, I, I'm more interested in, in finding solutions and less interested than uh, allocating blame if the worst were to happen, which would be catastrophic and would be the first time in American history. Mm. I do want to point out, though, I and my fellow Democrats, we practice what we preach. Three times when Donald Trump was in the White House, we voted to raise the debt ceiling. In fact, the vast majority of votes to increase the debt ceiling when a Republican was in the White House, came from the Democratic side. So we have a a clear track record on this uh, and have been principled and consistent. Raising the debt ceiling is the responsible thing to do. It's about paying bills (laughs) that you already rang up, you know, some years ago. Yeah. When it comes to the spending plan, part of Speaker McCarthy's argument, Congressman, is that he wants to bring levels back, as you well know, back to where they were a few months ago in 2022, which seemed okay then. Why is it different now, especially post-pandemic? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, On the surface, something like that can sound reasonable. However, um, when you actually look into the specifics, and given the number of things they would actually exclude from cuts, the Appropriations Committee uh, in the House found on the Democratic side that we'd be looking at anywhere from a 22 to 24 percent cut on all sorts of critical programs. I mean, we recently had rail, uh, we had derailments um, in Ohio and other states. We would have a number of train inspectors that would have to be laid off with those sorts of cuts. So when you take entitlements off the table and some of these other issues, you, your point is there's such a small yeah. piece of the pie that you're negotiating that bringing it back to 22 levels would mean much more draconian cuts than than is being described. That's exactly right. What sounds at first, which has the appearance of sounding reasonable, once you get under the hood, you realize there would be some consequences that, frankly, the American people don't support. Well, with that in mind, Congressman, doesn't this point to a much larger, longer term problem, even if you can find some consensus on where to pull back in the near term, both sides can have a budget that they agree on? I mean, when we're talking about the fact that you can't touch entitlements, that does not bode well longer term for the trajectory of spending in the U.S. economy, right? So we had a um, budget committee hearing a few weeks ago in which had a number of uh, economists testify in front of us. Uh, Mark Sandy, who I'm sure you've had on before, chief economist of Moody's Analytics, yeah. he pointed out that if, if you pursued what was the 
originally the Republican stated goal, which was to balance the budget in 10 years. But you don't touch Social Security, don't touch Medicare, don't touch defense, don't touch veterans. You would have to eliminate almost 100 percent of everything else. Even if you restore, even if you didn't go toward a total balanced budget, but you even went on the path there, such as cutting funding back to uh, FY22 levels, Moody's found that that would bring about a recession in 2024 in unemployment rates above 6%. So that to me, I mean, right now, the health of our economy is my immediate concern. Second, I would say, is not so much the deficit issue, but admittedly, we do have a long-term debt issue, especially as we get into the next decade, and the percentage of our population that is older that is 65 and older, will just be a higher percentage of our overall population. Admittedly, that is a challenge that we're going to have to tackle. I'm willing to sit down and talk to any member of both parties about how we do that in a responsible way. I don't see that, though, coming out of anything that Speaker McCarthy is proposing. Wow. Boy, this is going to be a long-term conversation, obviously, and certainly on your committee, Congressman. Before we let you go, can you tell our listeners and viewers today, that we're going to not only avoid a default, but a downgrade. That was two weeks before the X date when that happened in 2011. You know, I wish that I could say that with 100% certainty, but I'm actually someone who, as you may remember, for quite some time has been deeply worried about this issue. I was the person who led the letter back in October and November of a group of about 30 or so of my House Democratic colleagues saying that we needed to tackle, tackle raising the debt ceiling back then because I saw what a problem this could potentially be uh, with Republicans taking control of the House of Representatives. I deeply regret, mm-hmm. frankly, that um, you know that, that didn't happen uh, during uh, lame duck. So I, I would say that I'm hopeful, and I do believe there is a much greater than 50% chance that ultimately the debt ceiling will be raised. My biggest fear, though, is that um, this will play out for so long and we'll get Mm -hmm. so close to the deadline that we could indeed risk yet another downgrade, which back in 2011, when that happened, it increased our borrowing costs by billions of dollars. It's completely asinine. Well, and Congressman, right on this point, I was speaking with one of your congressional colleagues earlier this week, Brad Sherman, the representative from California, who told me he thinks the market is underpricing the risk that Congress messes this up. What is your message to the market right now? Are they accurately reflecting the reality? Uh, We had um, former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew speaking at the Democratic caucus meeting yesterday morning, and I said right there, Uh, I believe the markets right now are not pricing it in and are frankly overconfident when it comes to this issue. All right. And on that note, we will leave it. Thank you so very much for your time today. That is Congressman Brendan Boyle of Pennsylvania. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Well, they got the rocket off the pad today. SpaceX's Starship rocket, the cool-looking one more powerful than any previous crewed spacecraft taller than the Saturn V, which of course took humans to the moon. This one will eventually bring people, including NASA astronauts and cargo, into Earth's orbit and beyond. The next step, they say, to Mars. And Kaylee, we all got together right around 930. (laughs) You know, Bloomberg folks skipped the opening bell to watch this. Yeah. We had it on the terminal. America holding its breath as the starship counted down. for this thing as it clears the tower and boy what a feeling it was beautiful right beautiful launch yeah you hear the communications to control as the rocket clears the tower and a beautiful show for everybody chamber pressure nominal chamber pressure nominal looks good good launch Starship vehicle, tower cleared, we're into pitch over. Propulsion oh, yeah. reports first stage engines nominal, 
What a sight from the ground camera for Starbucks. Flying at twice the thrust of the Saturn V. Excitement. They couldn't believe this thing. I mean, it was historic, obviously. They said anything beyond clearing the tower was gravy. Just mm-hmm. to get this thing off the pad. And it's good that they had that in their minds. Because it blew up. Yeah, Kate, right now it looks like we saw the start of the flip, but obviously we're seeing from the ground cameras the entire Starship stack continuing uh, to rotate. We should have rotate. had separation by now. Things obviously, around. this is uh, does not appear to be a no. nominal situation. Yeah, it does appear to be spinning, but I do want to <laughs> remind everyone that Everything after clearing the tower yeah. was icing on the cake. That's right. I said gravy. We'll call it icing. And listen to the reaction when it blew yeah. up. They cheered, Kaylee. This is a great PR move. It goes to show you spin and framing See? is everything, In the Joe. face of failure, just celebrate. Just to isolate that, by the way, you're looking at the at the thing and it's flipping. What's happening? Then you just see this massive explosion. Here's what it sounded like. <laughs> oh, yeah. like, see, like a bad pitch, maybe. And yet, Joe, we say massive explosion. Yeah. SpaceX will say it was a rapid, <laughs> unscheduled disassembly. Speaking of good PR, who came <laughs> up with that? Someone definitely drafted that language in advance for this specific scenario. <laughs> yes, indeed. And so we're joined by an expert. We're going to be uh, turning things over to David Weston in a couple of minutes, his interview with Brian Moynihan. But we wanted to compare notes with an expert. Keith Cowing is here, the editor at SpaceRef.com. Keith, I don't know if you ever heard of a rapid, unscheduled disassembly, but it sure looked like one, didn't it? Yeah, and actually, uh, that's an Elon phrase. I think I first heard it 15, 20 years ago. Okay, so this isn't the PR team. (laughs) No, no, he didn't have a PR team. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. He just just Elon on Twitter, and whether it was a lot of icing or a lot of gravy, uh, there's a lot of that on that rocket today. That's <laughs> so, you know, are, are they right? Was this uh, just a matter of clearing the tower, or is this a major failure, or I guess both? Well, you know, I've, I've done a couple of interviews today, and I, I, you know, I guess I would say that, you know, former rocket scientist guy that I am, uh, anytime a rocket takes off, doesn't blow up in the pad, goes up like a rocket, and, you know, this is the first time they launched it. So, yeah, right. yeah, it took off. And actually, the problem it had was way up in the air, you know, 127,000 thousand feet, where the second stage didn't want to disconnect. So, you know, if this is my rocket and it's the first time I launched it and it's got 30-something engines and six of them didn't work but it still mm-hmm. went that high, yeah, I'd be jumping up and down too. And remember... This is a company that has a blooper reel for all the rockets. That do <laughs> right. Seriously, I'm dead serious. And it's like if 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 a NASA blew a rocket up like that, there'd be huh. congressional hearings. These guys have a blooper reel. They have a part. Yeah. Well, we did hear from the FAA on this just moments ago. They did say that there was no injuries or public property damaged uh, or reported uh, being damaged from this. They will oversee the mishap investigation of the Starship uh, test mission. But as you say, this was just attempt number one. Elon Musk was out tweeting today. Congratulations to the SpaceX team on this exciting test launch. We learned a lot for the next test launch in a few months. How much really can be tweaked? In a few months, could these problems be fixed entirely for the next time we all are eyes glued to the launch pad? Yeah, and here's the thing. If this was a NASA rocket, it would already be like a decade late, billions over budget, and there's only one in the barn, as they say. Mm. If they blew it up, they'd say, okay, and they'd be talking about what year before they launched again. Whereas with SpaceX, they've got the next ones down the street. As a matter of fact, one of them is often usually like within camera view. And so they build this like a consumer product, like a toaster, you know, like, all right, the toaster is burnt. The consumer, all right, well, we'll have to adjust the thermostat. There's, (laughs) you know, from now on, you know, we'll use continuous improvement to make them better. And that's baked into, pun intended, that's baked into how they built this rocket. Pun intended. Space guys are so funny. Keith, we got to do this (laughs) in person sometime. We don't have a date, though, right? Any sense of uh, when this is going to happen for another launch? We have to... Wait for Elon to figure that out. Well, I don't know. Today was 420, and everybody knew it was going to happen. Yeah, so right. Give me another police 911. Anyway, you know, it, <laughs> sooner than you think, and certainly okay. um, with more certainty, and I think the problem that they will 
find will be easily fixable. So if it's, not, if it's not 420, maybe it's 710 or some other <laughs> joke that Elon I, You know, has pick a number. You, yeah. you, you, got, you never know. It's Elon, it's Elon time, and it's just, you know, that's how it gets. He's the boss. That's right. Keith, uh, great to have you. Keith Cowing, editor, spaceref.com. Just the man we wanted for this moment, Kaylee. <laughs> I'll tell you what. If it's just gravy, clearing the towel, yeah. the tower, tell Major Tom that. <laughs> you kind of have to finish the whole flight for this to work, right? Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.